we're going to do this. Oh, what a difference a little power will do. So I don't know how much of that was captured, so I'll start over. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do 27 through 32. Again, we're studying adultery uh, that Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. That's his topic in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But I think as we do address this, we have to understand many of you will have questions that come off of this and or already have questions before it or have looked in it ahead and have questions. I have a page in my last of my notes in this section that says Q&A. So here's what I want you to do. That'll help us, because sometimes we can't hear what you're, or I can't hear what you're asking. So I would like you to put it on a piece of paper. You can either hand it to me ahead of time, or if you have one later, this is not for tonight, today. It'll probably be next week. Hand it to me ahead of time, or have, or run it up here, and I will look at the question and say, I can't answer that, throw it away. Or I will answer it. Um, this section, listen, this section answers the question this section is dealing with. That's all it does. Um, it's not case law. Uh, the first thing I wrote about, here's my notes. These are quick thoughts before we look even at the verses. This is not about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This section is not about that. So if you're off on that tangent, that's fine. We'll address it if we need to, but that's not what it's about. Secondly, this is not case law. We're not going to get every case. If this happens, should I get or can I get a divorce or, or I did get a divorce in the past. It was a right or wrong. I'm going to tell you some of the most hideous understandings I've ever heard come out of Matthew chapter 5. Just It's horrible some of the things I've heard. I actually heard, and we, I will play it for you during this, whenever I get to it, that a guy basically says, if you've gotten divorced and remarried, you need to get divorced and go back to your first wife. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Because he gets it out of this section, because I'm telling you, one of the hardest verses to understand in the Bible is Matthew 5.32. And we will, we will deal with that. Thirdly, um, there is some things in Scripture we just can't answer. And I think some people have an issue when you get to something in Scripture and you say, I can't answer that. And they say, what's your problem? You should know the Bible. You should be able to answer that. Some things are not answerable. And we will, we'll, we may come up with, I don't have a total answer for that. But here's what the Bible says. Also, just for conversation, God has divorced the nation of Israel for a time. And, due to their, and it's due to their idolatrous ways. And one day he will remarry her, restore the nation of Israel to her proper place. Ezekiel 16, the book of Hosea, deal with both those ideas. So if we say this and that, we're going to have issues. And we will look at some of these issues. According to number th- Numbers chapter 13 and a number of other passages, uh, seems to be very implicit that the woman has the adulterous affair and not the male. And we'll look at that because I think that still rears its head in Matthew chapter 5. And we have to understand what Jesus is addressing also. Um, obviously, we should all know what adultery is just by definition. It's the, uh, let's see, the mating of two people, a man uh, with a woman. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it. We're going to just read it. Because I know there's kids in the room, we'll deal with it. Intercourse with a woman who has either married a ma- to a man or betrothed to that man, that is, who had already had legal exchanges, which precedes marriage. 
Execution was required penalty for both. Biblically, execute. Now, I'm not saying do that today. We will have a very sparse population. Think that through. God actually listen. And here's what we got to do. We got to look at. And what I'm trying to do is get you a biblical balance. We're going to look at one section, and we got to still say what does the Bible say, not what one section says. God actually commands a guy named Hosea to marry Gomer, who's already an adulterous woman, who continues her adulterous ways in the book of Hosea, but God commanded him to marry her and not put her to death. And we know, and we'll probably address this a little bit, that Jesus actually has a woman presented to him who's caught in a very act of adultery. He doesn't say put her to death. He says, he was without sin, cast the first stone. So we'll look at all these things. I want you to go, before we start in Matthew 5, turn back a few pages to Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. And you're going to hold your finger there, and we're going to go to 2 Samuel also. So Matthew chapter 1. In the Lord's genealogy, I'll get there in a minute. I want to look at 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, Okay. In the Lord's genealogy in verse 6, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Do we know who that is? Bathsheba. But the Bible doesn't, in Matthew, doesn't even call her by name. She's still the wife of Uriah, and I think, I think, very clearly stating David stole somebody else's wife through an adulterous act. And according to 2 Samuel, if you want to go there with me, 2 Samuel 11, it gives us the account of what happened. But I think 27 is the key that I want to look at. So 2 Samuel 11, 27. Well, we'll start in verse 26. Let's get context. 2 Samuel 11.26 says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, again, not naming her, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet my first reaction is, David deserved to die. Why did God overlook it? So we have to keep in our mind as we're looking through this, God has an ideal, and then there is the reality of things that happen. God doesn't overlook sin ever. But we ought to ask ourselves a question. We go back to Matthew chapter 5. What is Matthew dealing with? Now, I'm going, to say, I'm going to give you a little hint that will help us with this. There is never a command in Matthew chapter 5 to do anything. Okay? Jesus is stating what he says, his interpretation of the law in the strictest manner as God would look at it, and this he says, this is this, and this is the way it should be, because the kingdom had come. These are the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, I don't want to go into this time of the Pharisees and what was going on, but if you read some of the things in the Mishnah of what was going on at this time, women were basically 
chattel. They were nothing. Uh, a man could have X amount of wives. It didn't matter in some cases. In some cases, he only could have one. If he took a, uh, there was also Leverite marriages. So if a brother died, he he had to legally take on his wife as a wife to bear children with her. Okay, so things are going on. What we would call culturally that are, we would look at and say, ugh, that's not for us today. And God is not approving of what was going on. He's just telling you what's going on. You understand? Because God's ideal, I believe I read from Genesis chapter 2, is a man and a woman become one and cleave to each other, leaving their mother and father. Right? That's God's ideal. Okay? When I get done with this, I am not giving... Listen, this is so important. I'm never going to give anybody a right to divorce. If you've been divorced and you're remarried, God bless you, grow in Christ, and go in Christ. Okay? Um, there's not a verse in the whole Bible that says you, the once you've gotten divorced, you're a dead Christian and you can't do anything. Um, when we will even, uh, for a moment, check some of those verses out. But I want to stay in the text as much as we can this morning and look at this. Um, but I really want us to get some points to remember as we get into this and look at this. So Jesus is dealing somewhere. Jesus is dealing with adultery in Matthew chapter 20 of uh, Matthew 5:27 through 32. So here's some points we need to remember. Uh, well, verse 27 is the command, so let's just read verse 27. And he says, "You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery." He doesn't add anything to it. That means the Pharisees at the time hadn't added anything to it. Where other ones that we will deal with, we've already dealt with, "Thou shalt not murder," and the other ones they deal with, Pharisees had added something to it. That was not in the original command. But this is the original command. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I think that's pretty clear. Um, again, these are not suggestions. These are commandments. So here's the points we need to be that we need to remember. As to the audience, it's still disciples. Pharisees are in the backdrop. Pharisees were always hanging around when Jesus began to speak because they wanted to catch him. They wanted to also test him. In Matthew 19, they test him on this same subject. A little different, but they test him on this subject. We're not doing Matthew 19, however. We will one day when we get there. Secondly, information for those who have repented and needed to show fruit of repentance. Recognize personal sin. This is a time when Jesus and John the Baptist has said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Then he says, Show fruit of repentance. If you've changed your mind about who Christ is, and this is what Christ wants, he wants you to live a life that's righteous. This is it. And these are the things that will lead you to righteousness. Obviously, if you don't commit murder, don't hate your brother, don't call people foul names, you're going to be pretty righteous in that area. How about adultery? And he's going to give you some understanding on adultery. And he always has an exaggerated statement that goes with it that you shouldn't do. So we'll look at this. Uh, Thirdly, the scribes and Pharisees had an outward human-oriented self-righteousness. They were outwardly really good people. And I'm sure many of you have met really good people that have some warped understandings of how life is to be led and what to do in life. And the Pharisees at this time, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, had two schools of understanding on divorce. And both of them were kind of weird. One was a little more biblical. The other one was basically, if your wife burned toast, toss her out. And I would say, that works, right? Uh, and we could get that from Matthew 23. We're not turning to it. I'm just 
put it up there so you can see. Uh, these are not new laws. These are not new laws, but correct interpretation of God's ideal. I'm going to say this so many times. I'm, I want you to understand these are God's ideals involving not just the act, but the mentality of one to obey the law. In other words, it's not physically being right. It's mentally being right. Your mentality should always be followed with your actions. And if your actions are there, but your mentality is not, are you really doing it? The ser- lastly on this slide, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is for those who need God's righteousness to usher in the kingdom. The nation of Israel had to be righteous in order to ru- usher in the kingdom of God. At this moment in what we call biblical history, they were far from righteous. They weren't even right. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says this. And I put it all on the board for this reason. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, they know the laws, for those who practice such things are, are worthy of death. They do not. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Uh, if you kind kind of look at this, this fits in. This set of verses fit in. Let's see, from the beginning of creation, the fall for to today, right? We can say we can find every generation that fits into this, and there are people that agree and practice such things. I got a text this morning from a group of pastors here in the city. I don't know why and how I got in this text loop. And, I, and if they hear this, I'll probably be, because I, decide, I told them, please remove me. One of the pastors texts back and says, my wife gets to preach this morning. She's fully going to be fully licensed and she gets to free, preach her first sermon. And three or four pastors chimed in and says, wow, that's, that's cool. And I chimed in, please remove my name from this list. Because I'm not going to say and, agree, and agree, heartily agree with something that I believe is biblical sin. Don't do that. So, But it, what, what's happened is a lot of people give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So, uh, Romans 4, 17, 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God is about righteousness, about peace and about joy. Not that we're not going to be eating. I know there's a feast coming. I have a reservation at a certain place at the table. So do you, right, if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Yes or no? You know that? Are you righteous today? Are you in Christ? You are righteous. You're an inheritor. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. Where do you fit into this list? Because some of you are like this, right? But you are washed. You've been sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.19 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealous, 
jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And what is Jesus presenting? The kingdom. And how do you get into it? Well, you've got to have a righteousness not of your own. So what is he saying? In order for that nation to enter, it's not just about doing these things. It's about mentally coming over to being, uh, submitting to him as their Messiah and believing in him. Uh, that's what's going on at that time. Ephesians 5.5, 5, For this you know with certainty, that no moral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an entrance, inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I think that's enough to understand that, right? What we, what we get out of that. Um, so we're talking about a... I, I lost... Okay. There was one more point in the list that didn't make it on my slide. Uh, we also have to talk about, remember, it's righteousness. It's God's righteousness that's required to get in that kingdom. Not a righteousness of our own. Because if it was a righteousness of our own, every Pharisee would be in heaven. And not that Pharisees don't go to heaven, but they also have to do what? Just like uh, Nicodemus was told, as a Pharisee, you must be born again. Born from above. He has to have a relationship with God. Uh, and 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 not only that, as a believer who are, who are righteous, God wants us and His desire for us is to exhibit righteousness. You understand that, right? So let's talk about this a little bit, the law of adultery. Now I put up here a halakha. Halakha basically is a collective body of Jewish religious laws. Customs and traditions, the way to behave or the way of walking. Judaism has a halakha. And, and I think sometimes we miss the understanding of a halakha. Basically, how many times is certain laws repeated and, how, and what are we supposed to do with those? Uh, within our? So here's the passages on adultery. They have to do with adultery. I'm not going to go through them all because I even put my favorite one. I love this one, etc. Okay? Because the Bible says it has a lot to say about adultery, especially in Deuteronomy. And I didn't put it up here. Deuteronomy 20.20 20 and, and Leviticus basically says you shall be surely put to death. Okay? And we'll, we'll kind of go through all these things. Uh, I, want us to, I want us to know something. This law... On adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, was basically given by God to protect marriage and society. And you could even say the family. Uh, and many of you, uh, and I'll say this even, let's even go even further. Uh, it's essential for well-being of those on earth. We have a lot of problems today on earth because of the freedom of society to divorce at will, remarry at will, um, and, and for every possibility that's going on in the world and there's problems in society and if you don't realize this there's problems with the family and it's breaking down America something fierce and we uh, in our political system want to accommodate everybody make everybody equal and therefore we allow and give an allowance for every kind of sin and God doesn't that's not what the Bible's about God has very little tolerance for sin if you didn't know that so much so that he put his son on the cross to die for our sin Okay, um, so basically the law protects marriage and society uh, and the well-being of those on earth. Divorce passages, or what I call passages that have to do with divorce, in some shape or form, there's not many in the New Testament. Uh, those, these are pretty much them. Um, obviously, there's, there's others that are congruent to that, but the, 
And here's what we're doing. Here's what we're not doing, but we will do a little bit. So don't think I'm contradicting. We're going to look at Matthew 5, 27 through 32. Then we may have to go to other passages to say, because they're similar, what did Jesus say in a similar situation and what was said there. So these are just the basic passages. Here's what's not said in all these passages. Ready for this? Every case you can bring up that someone was divorced is not there. And if you also notice, I left out 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says in many versions, husband of one wife, the character of a deacon deacon, or a character of a pastor should be a husband of one wife, because I believe the worst translations ever done. It means a one woman type of man. Do you get the difference of what's what's it saying? It's, It's not saying one woman at a time. But if, you say, but if you do say it the way it's written, it's basically saying certain people have to be married. And I know pastors that are not, that are not married because they're just not married. Okay? Um, and it doesn't... Basically, listen. 1 Timothy 3 is not dealing with anything but character of a man. So what's the character of the man like? Okay? And notice I said man again when... Never mind. We're not going into that text. There's two schools. At this time, there's two schools of religious thought in the time of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. I don't know if you guys know this. And in the time, Jesus was surrounded by Pharisees. He was called rabbi many times, basically teacher. He was teaching the word of God. He had his students. They're called disciples. So he had his, uh, he had his homeschool group, I guess is the best way to call it. And uh, during that time, there were different schools of Pharisees involved into two main Guys were a guy called Hillel and a guy called Shammai. Hillel was, at that time, the president of the Sanhedrin. Okay? Uh, and these were two noted rabbis shortly before the Lord's advent. So this school of thought carried over into Christ's uh, life and time on earth. Uh, so on divorce, here's what they said. There's the two main thoughts on divorce. Hillel says, if a woman burned a husband's dinner, she finds no favor in his eyes. In other words, if the man found another woman more attractive than his wife, and etc. In other words, you can divorce for anything. Go ahead. And if you were divorced, listen, this is so important, you were free to remarry. It's a given. There's nowhere in the Bible does it say, here's a verse on remarriage kind of thing. Uh, it's close, but really, we'll have to do the that another time though. Shammai says man can only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, not trivial matters. And the serious transgression would start with adultery. Um, and keep that in mind because when we get to verse 32, you're going to see what I, how I look at it. Okay, before exegesis, before we go into what, the, what it actually says, and you notice we haven't really read it except verse 27, because verse 27 is a given. We can't change verse 27. If you, sh- you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's Interpretation must be consistent within the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about a section that has to be consistent with the whole. Do you understand what I'm saying? So a good understanding of doing interpretation, we're talking a Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. You have to use the same model of interpretation. Jesus is clearly teaching the interpretational standard of the Lord, from a mental attitude or heart attitude, not talking about actions. It's talking about what drives the action. Where's your heart at? Because who could see the heart? Jesus. Okay? Again, I'm going to say this, and I know some of you think I'm yelling because I put capital letters up. 
This section is not, and again I say is not, Jesus teaching on marriage. He's not teaching on marriage. Okay? He's teaching on what? Thou shalt not commit, he's teaching on adultery. Okay? That's the subject. Jesus was also dealing with his disciples, full understanding of the law, a righteousness required for of national Israel, not a pharisaical righteousness. He wanted to get their mind off of what was the standard, traditional understanding of the religious man of that day that had gone way past Scripture. And the Scripture they were looking at was more oral laws, more oral laws than biblical laws. Have any of you heard of the Mishnah? The Mishnah is a Jewish commentary on the Bible. Well, the Old Testament, not the Bible. The Old Testament. And we will, I will address that at some point. But the Mishnah addresses ad nauseum, ad nauseum, divorce. Okay? And it's always... And then adultery too, but we'll get into the, the numbers in a minute. But what basically it's dealing with is the woman's side... And divorcing her, not about the men. Okay? So Jesus' interpretation of the seventh commandment. First, there's two keys. There's two keys that I, that I want to look at and keep... keep Adultery is not a physical act. It's, it's, it, it is where it begins. Not with the look, but with the heart. Okay? Now, when I say look, though... And did I even put it here? Oh yeah, look at this. This is cool. Blepo. This is the word. The, this is the Greek word blepo. Well, let's go back. Let's read Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Let's just read twenty-eight and twenty-nine. You with me? But I say to you, very emphatic. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So that's pretty clear. What he's saying is blepo. Blepo means to see, notice, watch, beware of, uh, look, look. What is, I don't know what that word is. It's look toward. I know what that says. I don't have the E got stuck in here. I copied and pasted that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. Um, but if you notice, this is about the man looking. Right? It's about the man. It's very... Uh, Male central. It's all about what the man's doing. Uh, this is, and, and it's interesting because it's saying this man is looking upon her. Um, and, and if you look at the part of speech, it's an article plus a participle. Anybody know what that means? I know I put this up a lot of times, but I want us to kind of, it's not a verb. He's not looking on her with an action. He is a looker upon her. Okay, you know what I'm saying? He's a looking one. He's a watchful one. He's constantly seeking. He's, uh, uh, w- you know, constantly on the hunt, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, it's a, it's, so you put that together with the idea of what, what the purpose of the look f- is for. Epithemeo. Epithemeo basically means desire or long for. And if you break it apart, uh, epi is a, pre- a preposition to intensify, and thumeo means passion. He's looking, he's a looking one, a hunter, who's seeking someone he can have uh, a passion with. Not just to lust after, but a passion with. He's thinking in heart, what do I have to do to get her? Get the point? So it's, it's beyond just a look 
and saying that's an attractive young lady. It's saying, okay, what can I do to add her to my harem? I guess is the best way to say it. Not mentally, but physically. He's, he's a hunter. Uh, so a better understanding of this was he's burning. He's one who's, who looks upon a woman with a burning passion. That's what's going on here. Uh, and the location of that, I said, is in the heart. It begins inside. Where, uh, and this is where only the man knows and God sees. This is where the Lord Jesus has clearly communicated the thought or action uh, is, is what it's about. It's God's viewpoint of where this sin begins. Because if you just say, Thou shalt not commit adultery, you're thinking of the actual action of that. And Jesus is saying, No. It's not the action. It's where the heart is. The word epithemeo, since it deals with passion, carries with it the idea of planning, the idea of intention, the idea of purpose, and effort that's involved to get the woman. Now, I told somebody once a long time ago, I'm going to say this again. Do you know how much effort it took to get your wife? Did you court her? Bring her flowers. Did you say, I love you? Did you do things with her? And now you're doing these things for someone else. Why don't you put that energy into your wife? If you did it to get her, can't you do it to keep her? So that's my my, uh, husbandly advice today on my anniversary. Just so you know, no secret, I bought her a present for the last four days. She got something. That's what I do. Okay. Uh, The sweater she's wearing to match this, because I had a plan. It's our coral anniversary. She had to match me. She has nothing coral. I put it back. I put. It, I saw it click. Okay? She goes, why are you dressing so casual for church? I said, I don't know. Then I said, it's coral. Today's coral. Coral anniversary. 35th. She had a plan. Because why? I want to keep her. So I plan ahead of time to do things. She's so roped in. I've been fishing for 35 years. I keep her on the line. Okay? She goes, I love you. I go, I know. <laughs> and my kids know it because I want them to see it. Okay? But that energy that it takes to do what Jesus says don't do should be put in the right place. This takes a lot of energy. I don't know if you know that. And this is what makes sin so very serious to God because it's in the mind, it's constantly thought about, it's a passion, and that's all this person's doing. It's desi- his desire is to go seek, hunt, find, conquer. It's the same idea that happened in the garden. And you say, well, who did Adam go find? Nothing. Eve did. She thought the fruit in the garden was desirable to make one wise. And she took it. It's the same idea. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it mentions that love for the world is lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. is not from God, the Father, but it is from the world. And that's what Jesus is trying to get these guys to understand. If you have this mindset, you're worldly. You're not godly. You're not righteous. So he goes into the seriousness of sin with an illustration. In verse 29 he says, And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it is better for one of the parts of your body to perish than for the whole body to go to hell. 
Now, no, he, Jesus isn't saying do this because we'd have a lot of one-handed blind guys. <laughs> Think about it for a minute. He's saying this is how, how serious sin is. Would you cut out an eye to stop it? He said, no, I don't think so. Then stop it. How about cutting off a hand? Now, this isn't Sharia law. Jesus isn't saying, do this. It's commanded of you if you start doing these things to cut it off. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this is how serious sin is. Are you willing to lose a member of your body to stop it? Do you understand that? Okay? Because he's not saying to anybody to do this. And I want us to understand that. Look over at chapter 18 of Matthew. He uses a similar analogy in chapter 18. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man that through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands and two or two feet than to be cast into eternal fire. Now, I don't know about you. I'm expecting a new body. Hands and feet don't matter. I'm going in, boom, shining. Right? That's what we're promised. I hope and pray that God is going to keep his promise, right? And if your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Now, he's not saying do these things uh, because, again, that would be an issue. Look at one page over, 19.12. Well, 19.10, just for good context. On a different note, Jesus is dealing also with divorce here. In chapter 19, but the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. That's what their conclusion was from Jesus' teaching. Which is kind of interesting, because I don't know if any of the disciples at this point were married, except we know Peter was. You know, Peter would say, what do I want to do, dump her now? What am I doing? And he says in verse 11, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs, who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there were also eunuchs who were made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now, we're not going into Matthew 19. But I'm going to say, if you take this uh, over the top, Origen, one of the church fathers, thought it was so literal, he castrated himself. Because he wanted to follow God's law, and I'm saying, i got an issue with that. That's not what it's saying. Don't do that. Um... There, okay. I'm going to play this, and prayerfully, this will work.
Okay, I stopped because it goes on and on. But you can see a couple of theological problems with this wonderful New Zealander and his nice little twang. Um, One of the problems he has, he thinks there's sin that's what? Erases eternal life. You can lose your salvation through a sin. There is no such thing as a perpetual sin except one, unbelief. Okay, there's no sin that says you go on forever perpetuating a sin. You need to do what? You need to deal with sin. Um, but the sin, uh, the position that you have being in Christ, if you truly understand the gospel and believe the gospel, you're saved. Okay? Uh, a sin can't take you out of Christ. I don't understand where he gets this. And if you notice, he's going from verses to verses to verses, and he's staying within two main verses in the Sermon on the Mount, which is not meant for... When it says, uh, Lord, Lord, in that day I will ask you to depart, he's talking about false prophets. He's not talking about people who have a sinful... Uh, or sin in their life. We all have to deal with sin. And if he goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and tells you what it says at the end, the beginning it deals of chapter 6, just so you know, deals with a guy who's having an affair with his mother-in-law. Just think of that. And Paul didn't tell this guy he's going to hell. He need to tell the congregation to deal with him and throw him out so that Satan can deal with him. But he didn't say anything about his salvation. And Christians do some of the craziest things, and I think it's wrong. We need to live, and our quest should be living a righteous life. I don't have a problem with that. We need to stop sin. And we need to deal with sin. And we need to live and grow in, in Christ and have a life that's worthy of the calling we called with. All these things. But for this guy to say this, he's, he's not understanding what the text is saying. And we're trying to deal with that. The Sermon on the Mount was never meant to comfort people. I want you to understand that. It was made, made, when Jesus spoke, many times it made every, his crowds uncomfortable. Especially the religious crowd. It was purposeful, and it was used to make all uncomfortable. If you don't go to the Bible and it makes you uncomfortable, you're not reading the Word of God. It should make you uncomfortable, because why? Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you don't understand this and don't grasp this, tomorrow, this New Zealander will sin. Somehow, some way. I believe the biggest sin was making that video, but that's we're not going into that. But we all sin. And if we were to add up our sins, it would be astronomical. Now, some of you are lesser sinners, may sin one time a day. God bless you. That's still 365 times a year, and in 10 years, that's over three grand. You're doomed. Because the Bible says if you've broken one law, you've broken them all, and you've already up to three grand in a year. And I don't think he recognizes that. 
What Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that it is important to grasp God's Word and sometimes he's going to say statements that's over the top to things for you to get on, to get an understanding how serious a relationship with him is. He says in Luke chapter 20, uh, Luke, Luke 14 verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you have hated everybody in your life? And you say, that's ridiculous, but that's showing you how important a relationship with his, with him is first. That's all it's showing you. He's not saying go out and hate everybody so you can have a relationship with me. He's saying put things in his proper priority. And I, th- I think many times as believers, we don't. We prioritize other things above him. And that's all he was trying to get them to understand. Do you think Jesus hated his mother? I mean, how does that sound to you? Yet people say, God doesn't hate anybody. Well, God hates divorce. My Bible says that. Now, we'll see that as we go through this. There are certain things, but we have to understand, God has an ideal. And it's tough because man is a sinner. And God's going to state, here is my ideal. Here's what I want for you. And when he gives you that ideal, he's giving you so you can live a life that's blessed. Do you understand that? Do you imagine what life would be like if we erase all of Romans chapter 1 out of our lives? If, again, if verse 29 and 30 of Matthew chapter 5 were taken literally, we'd have a lot of disfigured people in this world and in this room. Y'all, y'all guys, you got issues. I know, could I be one? You know? And it, and it is what it is. Um, and when we look at this and understand this, we've got to understand, in Jesus' day, he was dealing with those who were guilty, very guilty, of the sin of adultery. It was rampant in his day. I would say this, it's rampant in our day. If I would just list the sins I've, I've seen in my lifetime, of sexual sins, just sexual morality alone, it would probably blow your minds, the things I've seen, and the things I've heard of. And you probably could do the same thing, Back to me, right? Uh, we all don't live in a comfort zone that these things don't happen in. The God's ideal for marriage, though, he presents it very clearly. And in uh, two months, I get to do a wedding. And in the wedding, I'm saying this verse. Because I'm saying to these two young people, this is God's ideal. You, For this reason, you shall, a man shall leave his father and his mother and, and be joined to his wife. And they, what, the two will become one flesh. They will become one flesh. That's God's ideal. And he was saying it to a guy and a gal who had no mother and father. (laughs) Adam and Eve didn't have that. But he was setting a standard right there from the very beginning. This is the way he wanted it. It was also repeated in Matthew chapter 19 when he's talking to the Pharisees. So the purpose in God's marriage ideal and the institution of God's is one man, one woman together forever. And what... And what... Has, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, you, would be, you wouldn't believe some of the fodder that's out there that's saying, well, what if two people weren't believers and they got married? God didn't join them together. Does that verse say that? See, what this verse is saying is when you two come together as one, you're married. And God's ideal is you stay together forever or unless death separates you in, in Romans chapter 7. 
Which is interesting, because according to the Mishnah, what the Jews believed at that time is marriage was never broken by the man. It was always the woman. Because here's the interesting thing. In Judaism, men carried the seed to make the nation propagate. The woman was just basically a whore, a harlot, a prostitute. And she was going with many men. Again, we're dealing with biblical times. Things that were happening. Time would fail me if I would go through all of the biblical marriages that diverted from God's Listen, from God's ideal. Can you think of anybody in the Bible that diverted from God's ideal, one man, one woman? My wife and I had a discussion, Valentine's Day, on Jacob. How was Jacob's household? He married Leah, but he really wanted Rachel. He ended up with Leah and Bildad and Rachel and her hand. I can't remember all these names. He ended up with four wives, different kids from that. Lord knows what the house is like and the tent, you know. The, what was going on with that? And you say, well, God allowed that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. God even says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say, why? I, and I, I'll tell you very clearly. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you this today. Don't think you should do that. It's craziness. According to my Bible, there's a guy named Solomon who had a hundred, he's had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 porcupi- uh, concubines. Kid once said porcupines, it's stuck in my head forever. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, you have 300 concubines, it's going to stick you somewhere. And his wives turned his heart away. A thousand women. I don't even know, listen, I have problems remembering my kids' names. Okay? He's got a thousand women involved in his life. How many kids did he have? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to God, to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Which is interesting, because David had issues too. How many wives did David have? Let's just do that one. Well, I don't know. So when we do this, we can't say there's a solid example. Now think, if, if Solomon had fallen into to the law that people make, Matthew chapter 5, how many limbs would Solomon have? Just, see, my mind's crazy too, okay? And I'm sitting there saying, God, God allowed that. God allowed him, according to first class, to make choices that weren't very good. And then Solomon's got to write a book called The Song of Solomon. It's all about what? Everybody says it's a love song. I don't know what it is sometimes. Because I don't know, well, Solomon knew best because he had so many, that's not going to give you any knowledge. That's going to drive you nuts. You know, Solomon probably had a guy in a corner with a little shingle that says, come in, we'll counsel once a week. <laughs> You're going to have issues. Okay? We are, we are to be people who aim at God's ideal in all of life and should never settle for any less. That's the profound statement we got to look at. We can't say, well, this is what Solomon did. This is what Abraham did. This is what, no. Don't do that. God's just telling us the reality of what happens in life sometimes that people do. He's not saying, do this. I believe one of the questions I asked here, I don't know if it was which class it was, but how did Israel propagate so fast when they were in Egypt? Many wives had every guy. And if you read the book of Judges, one guy had 70 sons alone. 70. Now, I don't know about you all, that's a lot of bottle feeding. 
And I'm, I'm at the age of my life, I'm not changing a diaper or bottle feeding even my grandson. I'm not doing that. Sam even looked at me yesterday. She goes, I'm not doing it. You know why? Because I have the option not to do that. To live righteously, therefore, is, to, is doing godly things with the right mental attitudes. That's what's being focused here. It's not the easy thing, but it's the godly thing. It's not the easy thing. It's the godly thing. Now look with me at John chapter one, uh, John chapter eight. Excuse me. We're going to go to some of these verses that are up here. John chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and sat down, and they began to, t- and he began to teach. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman, caught in the act, uh, caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adu- adultery, in the very act." Now we all kind of find it humorous that, well, she's caught in the very act. Uh, who was peeking in the windows? You know, who was watching? I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting uh, to see what was going on. How public was this? And secondly, if you're caught in a very act of adultery, it takes two to tango. Where's the other person? See, because it wasn't the male's fault. Kind of get what I'm saying? And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in a very act of adultery. And and verse 5 says, Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such. What, What then do you say? In other words, Deuteronomy the law of Deuteronomy, and I think this is 10.16, so there should be Deuteronomy 22.22 and, and Leviticus 10.16, says such a one should be stoned. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking, he straightened up and said, He who was without sin... Among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, listen. Biblically, they had a leg to stand on. But they didn't. Because biblically, it says they both are to be stoned. They're both to be stoned. So they choose to put Jesus in a situation he's got to make it. But, he, you know, what did he write in the sand? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Question number 17 when I get to heaven. Jesus, what did you write? Could it have been the Pharisee's name that was with her? The Pharisee's name? Could it have been, are you writing the law? Or could it be he's just making emojis? I don't know. But the point he said is very clear. If you are without sin, cast the first stone at her. Who's, who's able to be the first stone thrower? Who could do that? And he again stooped to the ground and wrote on the ground. I don't know what he's doing. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, uh, where, and the woman, where she was in the midst, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, don't do this anymore. Don't sin. Stop doing this. 
Stop doing this. So how did he deal with it? He dealt with it as sin. The law dealt with it as death. It's interesting that he, he didn't change the law. He just said, where are your accusers? Where are those that could cast the stone? Again, he's dealing with sin. And the hardness of people's uh, life gave him a steady diet. That hardness of heart gave him a steady diet of unbelief. That's all these people were, were unbelievers. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand they have sin in their life and they can't lead a righteous life where they're at. And then he gave a concession in Matthew twenty and Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. He said, when, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and we just looked at Genesis 2.24, and it says, one man, one woman, how long? Forever, right? And now it says in Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he, he has found some indecency in her. How's that for a one-way road, ladies? My, my husband's a crud. You don't know him. What about me finding him indecent? Disgusting. Useless. Well, he, this is dealing with only this. He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. What normally happens, he's got to give her back her dowry money, double the goats kind of thing, and send her back to daddy. That's kind of what goes on in that deal. Um, so made kind of having a divorce not that easy because you had to double, the, double what you got back kind of thing. Uh, so it, it's interesting. It, it's, here's what Matthew, Matthew, when he's challenged with that, in Matthew, Jesus quotes that verse in there. But, he, but notice what he says. He said to them, verse 8 up here, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. In other words, Moses gave you a concession. Because Why? They were sinners. And he had to deal with the realities, ideal realities of life. I say to you, whoever divorces a wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Matthew 10, 4 and 5 says, and they said the same thing, Moses permitted, and all these are parallel passages kind of thing. God offers forgiveness though. That's what God does. God offers forgiveness. The Samaritan woman. Remember what he said to her? How many husbands did she have? And the one she's now living with was what? Not her husband. She had issues. And Jesus forgave her. The woman that we just looked at in a very act of adultery. He forgave them. In First Chronicle, uh, First Corinthians 6, he talks about that. Some, such were some of you. We were all sinners and when we were saved, God says you were in a sinning background. You were, known, you were known as a sinner. Today you're known as a believer. You're a saved one. You're not noticed by your sin, even though you got it. We all have to deal with sin, but you're identified with where you are at your position in Christ. Okay? Jesus on a divorce. Um, now I'm going to say this is preemptive. because Well, let's read verse 30. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32. And it's a good place to leave you hanging until next week, so just hang on for a minute. Buckle your belts. Here we go. Okay? Verse, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It says, And it, said, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a, bill, a, a certificate or a bill of divorce. But I say to you, but I say to you, remember, this is the law that had been interpreted by the Pharisees and used 
Because they were in the seats of Mo- seat of Moses now. Remember the Pharisees had obtained the seat of Moses. So they're using Mosaic accommodation. But Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife or sends her away. It's the same idea. Divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we'll look at it in a minute, but I'm going to give you this. This is so important. This is called the loophole for me. Because this is this is important. Okay, and this should be done for all of Scripture. First of all, we can be positive of certain interpretations. We can say, this is what it says, right? Absolutely. Yes, say yes. There's also a, possib- a probability of a might-be interpretation. It might be this. It might not be this, but it might be this. There's a lot of Scriptures like that that we can look at and say, okay, here's... And if, if you've done what I've done with verse 32, your head will spin, your hair will get grayer, and at the end of the day, there's a possibility of an interpretation, thirdly. And lastly, you could be puzzled and perplexed and say, I just don't know. And I'm going to give you, here's what it says, but I just don't know about 32. Here's God's will, though. Let's go walk through God's will real quick. We've been doing this in the first class. God's will is for you to be saved, sanctified, spiritually growing, submissive, suffering for Christ's sake, saying Saying thanks continually all the time, praying with that's First Thessalonians, and serving the Savior. Serving the Savior. First Corinthians fifteen, verse thirty-four. I I don't think I did I no. Okay. Says this, real fun verse. It says, Become sober minded as you ought, and stop sinning. Did I say that loud enough? Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's talking to a church, and how do you stop sinning? Verse says it very clearly. Grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him, and you'll understand there are certain things He does not like. And He's serious about sin. And He wants you to do what? Stop sinning! Stop sinning. He didn't say confess it and move on. He didn't. He said stop it. You know, some people cling on certain verses and say, if I confess my sin, he'll he'll forgive me. That's great. But does confession equal I'll stop it? Confession means I'll confess it today and I'll have to confess it tomorrow because I won't stop it. So I'll have to confess it the next day. But I won't stop it. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Put the priest out of business. Stop sinning. They say, well, I can't do that. Well, Romans says you can. Romans 6 says you can. So uh, let me give you some thoughts where I am with this um, passage. Um, well, before we do that, let me, let me kind of bring you up to speed on verse 32. Verse 32. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to give you an idea. He says, I say this to your advantage, and what I've done is, it, is I've kind of interpreted it a little different. Uh, a little differently. So this is my translation, okay? Whoever divorces his wife, except for the account of pornea, I left it in its original Greek, or some, she has, she has, listen, she has some sexual impurity. Do you understand what it says? It says she has some, causes her to purposely commit adultery for herself. She has some uncleanliness, the man gets rid of her, and she now is caused to commit adultery because she's got to get married. She can't live in that society alone. I know there's a lot of single moms in today's society. That was not uh, uh, too easily done back then. You would basically die or become a prostitute. 
which basically is committing adultery. And whoever being a divorced person um, then, uh, then commits adultery, uh, can this... Now, and what it says at the end of this, just so you know, adultery in verse 32 of chapter 5 of Matthew is in the present tense. And I don't believe in a present tense action. And some present tense verbs can be, this is done, it's talking about the overall act. Um, but it can't be an unforgivable sin. Mark 10.11 says it differs, but it's similar. Mark 10.11 has... It's, but remember, this is a very male-dominated society. The male has to divorce his wife for any reason, then causing her to commit adultery. Often the reason for divorce was to commit legalized adultery. Sometimes just divorce her because I want to sleep with Mary Jane. And in order to do that, I've got to divorce her and legally marry her. But by doing that, I'm causing... Other things. Therefore, the Torah had allowed uh, for remarriage as long as the divorce wasn't used to consummate adultery. You could get divorced as long as you weren't doing it for adultery purposes. What? See, this is all very confusing. I'm sorry. And you're looking at me like, what? Uh, again, there's no command here. Did the righteous, the, did, did the religious, self-righteous Pharisees use divorce to abuse their partners? I don't know. But they did abuse the law to divorce the wife and marry others because it's well known. Um, and it's the same as adultery. Now here's what it says if you were to do, if you were to take, let me just do this real quick. That's, let's do this. I can do this because I got a Bible program. Just gotta bear with me. I'm gonna show you what it looks like. And this will make your eyes bug out. That, just hang on. Listen, we started early because I only picked so many songs. So, Yes, except it's going to cut off one word, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. The problem with this that we have, if it, let's just start. To, it says, but I say to you that whoever, let's just walk through it this way, that whoever... Um, or any man, it would be any man because it's, it's masculine. See, if any man shall divorce uh, the wife, his wife, shall divorce his wife, okay, so it's talking to who? The man, okay, so we know that. Except for the account of fornication, which is, or, or pornea, which is feminine. Do you understand that? Now, you know, like for instance, this dios can be feminine. Because why? It doesn't, we don't care if it's a male table or a female table. It doesn't matter. When we're using words that have to do with people, and we just said wife, it's got to agree with what's being on. So this is basically saying, except the wife fornicates. What was the husband doing? Who cares? It's not talking about that, right? Causes, causes her, I don't know how it got off the board. Um, and I can't make it come on, the, the board. But right here is the word her, feminine, her to commit adultery. So she has a problem. He, he, he divorces her for the sole purpose to get rid of her, and then now she's really committing adultery. Whoever having been divorced, then shall, whoever having been divorced, feminine, so whoever the female is who has been divorced, shall marry, uh, commits adultery. Now you see the problem I have with it? I have so many problems with this verse. I can't even begin to tell you, but I will tell you this. Adultery is, is, is unlike other sins because it involves the body. That's basically what's going on. You've, you've involved other things in other people. You cannot commit it. 
I don't know why that came up. There's the Mishnah. Oh, here's an interesting thing. Let's just do this. We got two minutes. Unless Ben run out of film. Oh, I don't know why he's doing that. Let's try this. Let's not do anything, right? Stupid, stupid program. I hate computers, and computers hate me. Um, let's just do that. Oh, there it came up. Adultery's in there. T- Listen, adultery's in the Mishnah ten times. An important thing, right? Watch this. This is just so much fun. We can do fun things. You'll get the point in a minute. Say, so what's the point of this? Ready for this? Below. So what's important in the Mishnah? The Mishnah is the commentary on the Old Testament the Jews write. You, we don't have to go through them all, but you can see it's it's very he balanced though. Because when you go to it, you say divorced woman, divorced uh, the husband is dead and he has divorced her. Uh, this is which is I don't understand dead people divorcing, but so we can read through this whole thing. And when you talk about divorce, it's man heavy, not women heavy. Women, listen. Women could not take their husband to the local county court and say, I want to divorce him. Couldn't, couldn't be done. They had to support themselves. So when the mission talks about it 395 times, it's talking about a woman, a man heavy understanding what they would do. So I'm going to give you a few points. It'll take five minutes. I know we're running over, but my wife is with the kids so, or, and somebody else's wife. Many wives. No. Um, do I have this? Let, let me give you quick thoughts on this, because that way we can wrap this up, and next week we could do the question and answer, okay? This is God's ideal, and it's not to be convict. It should be convicting, but it also cannot contradict other passages. So when we deal with Matthew 5, 27 through 32, it should be convicting. And don't come up to me later and say, Pastor, I got divorced when I was 17. I got remarried. Is that good? Not relevant to the conversation. You're fine. Move on with life. Grow as a believer. This society treated women as chattel. Uh, very sad, but very true. Um, and I just showed you what the mission I mentioned. God wants us and that generation to understand how serious the issue of sin is. This passage, is, as the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is dealing with more of an inner attitude, not teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Men and women need to respond correctly to God's ideal. Think about that for a minute. Do you know what God's ideal in your life is? Don't say, well, God doesn't know the reality. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. We good still? Looking. Okay. The church is never to shoot the wounded. We are to care for all, for all of sin. And I should have said fall short of the glory of God. I, th- I think sometimes people come into church and we have pet sins. And say, you did what? You who? Oh, we don't tolerate those kind of people here. We only tolerate the greatest and the finest of all human beings. The place would be empty. Joseph was a righteous man who was, who was willing to divorce Miriam. Did you guys ever read Matthew chapter 1? He finds Miriam pregnant. Now, all of you know, if there, someone's pregnant and says, Oh, I've never been with a man, your next statement is going to be what? Not really, right? You've got to be kidding me. Really? That doesn't happen. Somewhere in the, in the Inquirer or some rag magazine, they'll say, Look, this girl got pregnant by no man. She's not a flower and she's not a plant. She can't do that. Or what is it? Some dinosaurs used to procreate without... That's not... The, no, that's not how God meant, meant us to be. 
That's not possible. So Miriam tells Joseph, I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit. His first action has got to be right. And he went to put her away. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant God has meant for life, and often life happens. Kind of know what I mean by that? The Bible recognizes the reality of human sin nature. This passage never plugs into the horrors of human nature of two people becoming one with a ton of issues. I don't know if any of you who've gotten married, I'm looking around the room, yes, I'm looking at all of you, who've gotten married to have are issue-free. You know, and the first thing I wouldn't want to do, and since I didn't do it when I was younger, I didn't look at her and say, your issues are your issues, my issues are my issues, keep them away from me. That never happens, right? Because we become issue sharers. And that becomes, now it brings in more issues. And then you have children. And, and I'll say something like this to my beautiful wife, can I take this one out and kill it and go get another one? And she said, you can't do that. I go, why? Because this issue is my issue right now. And she said, you can't do that. And we, when, we, we, when we go through life and marriage, stuff happens and stuff needs to be dealt with. And the, I'm going to give you a little hint. We need to be better communicators. Okay? This isn't marriage counseling and neither is that section, but I want you to just know that. Man from the beginning has sabotaged God's perfect will. Do you know that? From the very beginning, God says, this is my will. You shall do two things. You shall what? Not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pretty clear. And what? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Okay, I got this. Not eat. Make babies. How did that happen? Well, they did the first one right off the bat. No babies. What's going on? How long did they make it before they couldn't even keep it? How long were they alive? I believe it was the eighth day. God rested on the seventh day, eighth day. He had issues to deal with because humans. If it was, if men and women would only do this, then there would never be divorce. And fill in the blank. And we could put in there, live for God, love the Lord, put Him first, keep Him first, and prayerfully your partner will do the same. When the kingdom comes, those who are marked by sins will be left out. If they're marked as adulterers, murderers, so on and so forth, they're not going into the kingdom. We have a relationship as believers with Christ. We're in Christ. But he's not saying, go and sin. He said what? Stop sinning. Now, I'm going to show you this real quick. You know God hates divorce? It says it in Malachi. But but, But yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. But no one has done so has a remnant of the Spirit. And what what did the one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce. It's God speaking, says the Lord God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I hate this. Stop it. 
That's what he's saying to the people in Israel. And you believe that? That's one of the last books in the Old Testament. They closed their, in the Old Testament, as they're closing their Bible, they would say, God hates divorce. And yet every year the divorce rate rises outside and inside the church. But that's God's ideal. Here's the reality, though. God com- through Ezra, God commands the priest and the people that have re-entered Israel to divorce their wives, get rid of them, send them away. Because they had intermarried with foreign elements that would destroy the nation of Israel. God tells them, we're not going to read it all, but God tells them to basically get rid of them. They already had kids with them, and they said, get rid of them. It's a horrific event in human history. And that's God's reality. There's a reality there. Verse 44 says, And all these had married foreign wives. He gave, he listed them for public record. He told you who did this horrific thing before God and how to get rid of their wives. And some of them had wives by whom they had children. It destroyed the family, but God had to do it. Why? Because we're going to destroy a nation. So, the next slide should have said Q&A. Next week we'll have questions and answers. I went 12 minutes over. I'll give you back the 12 minutes next week. Maybe. Maybe. We're going to stand and pray and we'll be dismissed. Um, it, it's, And I'm sure, again, some of you may have questions. Please don't all come up and ask me questions afterward. Write them down, because I'm sure other people who are more embarrassed won't answer, ask the question, and we'll do it next Sunday here, live on the 23rd. Father, we thank you for this time. Again, as we've looked through Matthew, and more than anything, our conviction should be that there's a standard you have set. And Father, we cannot reach it on our own. We cannot obtain it all the time. We cannot be sin-free. And Father, we thank you that you do forgive sins that we have a relationship with you through your Son, and your Son paid that payment that was necessary for the sin. And Father, we, as believers today, we, we, we beckon you to help us through these areas of sin, help us to recognize them, help us to deal with them, and help us to stop, Father. You give us your Spirit to energize us, to help us and empower us through that. Help us to be people of your Word so that we will not reflect the things of the world. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may, you may be dismissed.